0: Mm-hmm. 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 So the the comment has to do with uh, everyday practice, and both Annie and I and Steve are going to is going to show up pretty soon. Uh, we'll all be able to respond one time or another. Um, yes, yeah, pe- for some people, as you mentioned, it's it might be better to sit one, two, or three times a day. I don't know anybody that sits three times a day, actually. That really seems pretty far out there. <laughs> Twice a day. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, once a day, in, if you're doing a once a day sitting, find the time of the day when you're most alert and that you can um, have some seclusion or solitude as much as possible. So for many people that's the morning and it takes some sacrifice because you know we might be used to we need to get out of the house at a certain time in order to get to work and you need to wake up an hour or so ahead of that in order to get ready and so the sacrifice needs to be that to wake up earlier so it's just a matter of getting used to setting the clock and an hour earlier, an hour and fifteen minutes earlier, to do that sitting. In the beginning it's a little challenging, but after a while you can get used to it. And then some people, in addition to that, might also do the evening. So um, evening uh, practice is good, it might be especially good for metta. Many of us, I know, come from a Christian background and, you know, saying your prayers in the evening. I just had gotten into the habit of that growing up, and so saying metta, uh, doing the metta practice in the evening, even just laying down in bed and doing it was, uh, when I started adding that to my practice years ago, that became a place of, of refuge for me to be able to do that. So that kind of daily, formal practice is is really good. If you uh, haven't begun a daily practice, just starting out with 20 minutes could be helpful. Or if you're already at like 45 minutes, what about doing 50 minutes? Just kind of going beyond your edge a little bit. And now I think you've had a few hour-long practices here, and try it for an hour. Sometimes, we surprise ourselves. Is there anything else about daily sitting practice?
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. hmm
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's, I hear that that people alternate one day for daily exercise and the, and again an opportunity to bring your mindfulness, just general mindfulness, to the movement of the body. Um, one day for one, and another day for sitting practice. And again, since you missed the first part, I don't know if you heard this, but sometimes it just takes that little adjustment of getting up earlier, and we can do that. We're we're not beyond that. You know, we have the capability. So sometimes I hear that people surprise themselves. Um, when I heard the Dalai Lama's regimen, you know, with all his traveling, and that was really inspiring to me. You know how he. He not only does uh, sitting practice, but he does a lot of studying and uh, all kinds of other things in relationship to his, his work and, and his spiritual practice, so he can, I think he gets up like 2.30 or 3 or something like that, even with his busy schedule. When we get used to it, it's, and we kind of get over the hump of the, um, I can't do it, it's quite possible. So, I just encourage you to explore that avenue.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> that could be a revolutionary thought, but uh, <laughs> why not? It it. Uh huh. It it could be. So why not? I just want to maybe you know see if we can go past what's comfortable. Oftentimes we don't have to do very much to find out that oh this isn't so bad. I can do this.
1: Oh, yeah, good. One thing, uh, when I first started practicing and first heard about metta, uh, and didn't have much time during the day to do much practice, I was very busy. I
0: committed to doing metta in bed at night for just a few minutes every night. And I found that incredibly helpful to to get the momentum of the practice going. It also helped to go to sleep. So There's, there's always some time. Yeah. I think we use a lot of our day uh, uselessly. If we can really examine what we do in the day, reassess it, and just make a whole new way of how we can use our day, it's possible. Well, I I haven't heard anybody try that, but try it and let us know. (laughs) Give us a report. Um, You can do metta practice anywhere. You know, most of the feedback we get is people use it like uh, when they're at stop signals and offering metta to everybody around or just on the subway or on the plane. Um, Just finding a place that you might automatically, spontaneously, habitually, offer metta. I heard a story once from Sharon, somebody on a plane. She got a little frightened and then remembered that somebody, somewhere, was sending metta to all beings. And that really helped her to relax, just to know that somebody, somewhere, was sending metta to all beings. So I I got this idea in my mind whenever I saw an airplane to offer metta to all those beings in that little tiny thing going through the <laughs> sky, and so that you know, there's a lot more planes in the sky. So that and and where we where we live, we see a lot of planes coming in. So um, wherever you can find in that that place where you can develop a good habit, offering metta. Oh, that's great. Oh, here's a swimmer, uh huh. Uh -huh. Oh, right. So one in the swimming, one lap for seeing. One lap for hearing. Uh-huh, very good. Okay, so how do you use it as a counting practice, Joanne, and you integrate that in? Oh, uh-huh. okay. So the whole lap, the whole length is seeing. Back, hearing, moving, touching. Uh huh. Very good. Any other suggestions from you all? Yes? Do you have one? Go ahead. Uh huh. Go ahead. Yes, yeah,
2: hmm yes, mm-hmm.
0: You mean to get it away? Oh, okay, Uh uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we all feel like that, right? I feel like that too. I mean, even we all, Annie, Steve, and I are steeped in the Dharma. It's, it, we need to just stop thinking about the suttas sometimes, you know, and whatever else, uh, the students. And, um, it's helpful actually when you think about the bigger picture to find ways to, um, Let the mind just be open." So I find it really helpful to go outside, to sit outside, or to look out a window, and to just note, seeing, seeing. You know, in, in that time slot that you have, if I put myself in your shoes, and I, oh, well, I'll come home, and maybe I'll just read even a Dharma book, or the words of the Buddha, or even to listen to a Dharma tape, it's too much. I, I really just need to clear the mind. Yeah. So, allowing this yourself to just be outside in nature really helps. Maybe just walking and feeling the body move through space. Um, letting the mind be, be spacious. Noting, hearing. just Or noticing, hearing. And just being in a more receptive and letting the mind flow mood. I think that we need to do that in our lives here in 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 the West and in the social structure that we're in. We've got so much input that we really need a time when we're not inputting anything at all, even the Dharma. So that period of time, how can you spend that period of time just letting the mind be spacious, but not spacing out. So it's helpful to have something to notice, like just hearing, just seeing, just being outside in nature, smelling the pine trees if it's this time of year, or whatever you uh, smell. Just being close to the sense doors, but not needing to have anything go through mental thinking or anything. And any kind of exercise is good, though I know sometimes for me, I'm it's just too much. Even to think I have to go for a walk. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Well, some for some people, for me, it helps to to listen to music and just to just to note hearing pleasant um, like that enjoying That's fine. Mm-hmm. Balance, balance. Yes.
2: Mhm. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, correct. Mm-hmm, hmm Yeah.
0: right incorporating silence and um, meaningful dialogue in and and maybe leaving out um, Steve's going to talk about this tonight right speech and the kind of uh, words that we put out there sometimes that don't go anywhere um, I mean even in terms of connecting it doesn't even connect it's just words that we just throw out habitually all the time. In Pali, that's called sampapalapawada. It's called useless speech, uh, frivolous speech, speech that has no benefit or no aim. And um, more about that tonight. But this is a process, and it could take a while. I mean, for you, it's you and your partner. For many people... There's families and more than that involved. Oh, you have your animal friend, too, your dog, there. And uh, now I'll tell you what we've done in our house, but I haven't been able to do that when I was raising children. Uh, Just with Steve and I now at home, there's a period of time in the morning where we've just kind of come to where we're not speaking to each other. Uh, From waking up early in the morning till probably about 8 o'clock. And, you know, we're together a lot. And so we need this time to be with ourselves and to be quiet. Now, that may not be the right time for you or any one of you, but just to find a place where, in the quietness of one's relationship, you can find uh, respect for each other and also a kind of, connection that you don't find in speaking. I'm sure each one of you in your own ways has found a very deep metta or compassion or just allowing the other person to be connection in just being here in the silence. Haven't you in some way appreciated that about each other, being with each other quietly, not needing to speak? and feeling a kind of uh, mutual respect and love that you don't find when you're speaking. Not that it's more, but just that it's different. And so finding um, a way to do that in your relationship is really special. It's really precious. It's really uh, something that, the world doesn't teach us so if you if you're in a situation where you can find that where you can have that in your life or create that in your life that's extraordinary and that's uh, there's so much that can happen in that quiet space that's unimaginable and we can't even speak of but if if you can have agreements to do that even if it's just the hour that, for example, you get home from work, we all have that. You know, the time you get home from work, and you just want to be alone, or you just want, and just having that respect from uh, the rest of our householders who are living with us. And and then there are times of having signals with each other, of knowing when, for example, um, your partner at home need some space, but you you didn't know. And I know when Steve was a monk for almost six years, so uh, he had disrobed and then was um, a lay person for a while, and then I met him. And he needs a lot more time with himself than I I had been used to. So I had to get used to his giving me, um, reading his signals of when he needed that inner space. And I'm, you know, a mother, and um, I grew up with a lot of connection, but learning to respect that space was a whole process for me, and not go into the old abandonment kind of issues that, you know, um, if he wasn't speaking, does that mean, you know, I interpret that in all kinds of ways that, you know, bring my psychotherapy bill up a lot higher, <laughs> so it, it it was just learning how to read that from from my from my partner. Now, for those of you who have families, I just want to bring in this reality that when I was raising my children, and uh, I was practicing, I had to sit up in bed, and at some Times I had a, a child that I was nursing and I was sitting while I was nursing. And then one child would come in during my sitting, getting ready to go to school, and saying, Mom, where's my lunch money? Or where's and I had to open my eyes and say, Oh yeah, go get my purse and just take it out of there. And they'd say, Okay, give me a kiss, goodbye, you know. And then another time they'd get older and they'd say, Mom, can I use the car? You know, mom. Mm -hmm. And I'd say, mm, okay, aversion, aversion, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Then then stop and consider and, you know, give whatever answer was appropriate or inappropriate. And then, you know, goodbye, make the closure. And this is how I had to do my sitting practice at home. So it's not always a reality that you can be quiet. You, you have to integrate the noise. You have to integrate interruption. Um, you have to integrate when people don't understand and you feel hurt and maybe there's misunderstanding. So all of that you have to integrate in your daily practice. hmm yeah
2: hmm <laughs>
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we go home to our partners who haven't seen us for a week, there's a lot of equanimity we have to practice, and you know, and just understanding they've been in a totally different world, and they're not going to understand. You know, oh, I really got into the feeling on the top of my foot. they you know, when they're just not going to understand that. So we just have to be. Um, kind of meet them where they at where they're at. and also um, maybe just state, you know, I'm, I feel I'm in a very vulnerable place and I may not be um, responding in a way that's the same. So I hope you understand too, because you're, you're so much more open and vulnerable than you even can imagine you are. And you'll realize that when you go back into your space. You're, you know, you'll, you'll, the same things will happen to you that have happened before you came here, and you could feel very emotional about it. And, or very, you know, even aversive about something. So be very compassionate with yourselves and also others as much as we can. As far as the, um, Renunciation. Yeah, I've had, you know, long lists of what I'm going to change. I even tried to bring the schedule home. You know, that was so stupid. Uh, <laughs> you you were not going to have this schedule at home. Um, so just be realistic. And maybe I encourage you to make the change, some changes, but not try to do everything on the list because, you know, we, we get a lot more. We think a lot more can be done in the quiet of our space here than actually can be done when we get home. And then checking it out with our partners uh, before we make the changes. Uh, I remember going home and trying to be quiet, and the kids said, Mom, we didn't have this agreement, you know, that You know you want to be quiet, but we don't want to be quiet. So this is not, you haven't come to this agreement with us, and wake up and smell the coffee, you know. That kind of thing. So we just have to be realistic with what's going on out there. The, the, there's one thing that uh, friends of mine have incorporated that have been really good. And one friend of mine is a school teacher in junior high school in um, in Minneapolis. And she brought a bell to school. So every time, like, like uh, this kind of a bell, so every time it got really... Uh, noisy, and people were chaotic as can be in junior high school class, uh, somebody would go up and ring the bell, and then everybody would be quiet. So some families have introduced that into their homes, and just as quiet as long as the bell was ringing, just quiet then. And then it got to be in that high school class, junior high school class, that they wanted the bell to be rung every morning. You know, at a certain time for one minute of quiet. So that, that was a way to, for everybody to agree for some quietness. And the television thing is huge. I mean, I'm not sure if, if um, you know, that could cause a revolution sometimes. So I have to be really careful about that. But bringing it to another room was really helpful in my case, where it didn't have to kind of impinge upon everything in the house.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, let's see. I saw your hand first actually. TV suggestion, great. Uh-huh. That's very nice. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. Like this. <laughs> well silencio. Uhhuh. Right. That's uh huh. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, whatever works. I'm not sure that this works for everybody, but whatever works. But that was good, very good training. Mm -hmm. Very good training. Um, We 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 live in a place where we don't get a TV reception, and so uh, this for the last ten years been without TV, and it's really a relief. It's so wonderful every time. I'm in a place where there is TV, I notice how addictive it can be. You know that? I mean, even Manindra, when he was at our house, I saw him, he just loved that channel changer. <laughs> and uh, so, it just see if, if you can do without it for a week and see how your life is. I, I mean, just try something and see what happens with It, it might be good. Yes. Live by yourself.
2: mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, there's two parts to your comment and question I'd like to attend to. First is how important it is to have a teacher on a regular basis. Well, it depends on how far you want to go in the practice. <laughs> um, it's really helpful to have somebody that knows your practice that you can touch base with. And if it's if it's one person, that's great. One teacher that you can that's in your area, for example. You know, and if it's not even a teacher, if it's a spiritual friend, Kalyana Mita. There are a lot of what we call kalyanamita, which means spiritual friend. Uh, There are a lot of groups all around. And also there are what we call community dharma leaders um, who have been trained at spirit rock in different parts of the United States. So if you can just have a chance to talk to somebody about your practice, it's so important because we go through things in our training our training our mutual training that you can't talk even to your partner too sometimes if they haven't gone through the same training so the vocabulary that we use the fact that we're, we we get so close to the sense doors and it's it, you know pure sensory perception sometimes which is can be quite foreign to some people and so um, having somebody you can speak with that has even the same vocabulary is important. Uh, sometimes just being able to speak what's happening is already 99% is taken care of there because we have our own answer, Once, especially, I think, for women to be able to put it out there and to get some kind of a reflection. So having a spiritual friend so important. The Buddha was uh, one time, Ananda approached the Buddha and said, Venerable sir, half of the holy life is spiritual friends. Is this not so, venerable sir? And the Buddha said, Not so, Ananda, not so. Do not say that. The whole of the life is spiritual friends. The whole of the holy life is spiritual friends. So having a spiritual friend is pretty high on the list. If you can have, a, if you practice with a teacher, or you, you you know somebody that can understand your practice, and you go uh, to a retreat with that person, say every year, that's very good, or even twice a year, even better. Sometimes it's not one person but a collective of teachers. Uh, for example, there's a group of IMS teachers; those of us who teach a three-month course, of which Steve and I and Annie. Or a part of that we we have the same kind of methodology so I I would I might understand I do understand in the same way that Steve or Annie understands a certain place in practice you might handle it differently but it's good to go to that same kind of teachers
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the second part of your question or comment has to do with um, kind of default settings, going to places of wanting to be soothed when there's dukkha, going to comfort uh, when there's dukkha. So this is where uh, the, the practice of renunciation can come in, actually. I'm, I, I kind of feel in the same boat you, you are. This, this is my default setting, too. And so what what's helpful for me is When I feel this wanting or this need to do something that's soothing, I stay with that wanting moment or that longing moment and not act it out. So this is the renunciation of not acting out, not feeding it. It's so uncomfortable to be there, but it's very uh, illuminating and letting go very directly of the wanting mind right there is uprooting something that's very, very deep, and the uprooting of that is tremendously freeing. And that's right then and there it can be done.
2: Mm
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Right. Yes, yeah. Right. So... When I was raising my children, of course, you know, Hawaii is a Buddhist state. There are more mo- more Buddhists there, most Buddhists there, but not not in this kind of tradition. Um, but anyway, and there are a lot of Christians there, and I was raised a Christian, and um, mostly my children's friends were in the Christian tradition. So. So that as how I had to couch it, you know. So I couldn't. um, mm, I wasn't giving them Buddhist teachings, but I was just living the teachings of the Buddha, and so they would see me, and I would I would uh, point out, for example, how generosity is so good, and I'd I'd ask them. just in the practice of generosity, my one daughter who's 23 now, I asked her and other children at at certain points, what would you like to give that belongs to you that would make you happy to give? And we're going to the Salvation Army in a few days, so can you gather some of your toys? So, for example, um, I would sit down with her, and she would say, Mommy, this is really hard. I don't want to give this up. And I'd say, okay, well, you don't want to give it up. It's okay. But is there a place in you that could give it up? You know. And then she would really examine that, and I would go with her in examining that and saying, it is really hard, isn't it? Yes, she would say. And uh, how would it feel if you gave it up? Would that, would the happiness be the same as the hardness? To give it up, or would the happiness be more, or would the hardness be greater? And then sometimes she would say, "The happiness would be greater than holding on, than the hardness of holding on to it." And that's how I would give them the teachings. I'd say, well, "That's wonderful." So let's see what happens when you actually give it up. You know, then she would. We would go to the Salvation Army together, and various, you know, um, various degrees of attachment that she would have to certain things. And she would begin to realize not only the benefit of letting go, but realize the different degrees of attachment. So she would begin to examine her own heart for, for that. And also loving-kindness, I did teach them loving-kindness, and did teach them how to be with the breath, but without any Buddhist overlay on it. It's just um, universal. And karma, teaching them. I didn't use the word karma all the time, although that's a fairly um, loose word that we use in Hawaii, anyway. But just uh, pointing out to them that, you know, this action that is hurting someone at some time, we may feel a similar hurt because there's there's a, an effect that comes from. The, the actions that we put out there, and them being my children, you know, they would they would take that in as young people, and they wouldn't question that, and then they would live into seeing how true that is for themselves, not because I told them, but because they just took that in as some way of um, of some formula. There is cause and effect, and then they lived into seeing that that's true. And they would now they they all talk to me, even though uh, one of them is a very devout Christian. They they all talk to me about karma. So, um, being living the teachings of the Buddha, which are universal teachings. The teachings of the Buddha did not belong to the Buddha. He just discovered what led to happiness, what led to peace, and pointed that out. So. Being that, rather than um, you know, having some kind of um, book reading or anything, was the way that I, I presented it to them, just those little examples, but much more in action and in, in everyday life. But my youngest daughters attended a couple of retreats, and you know, they're, they're all on their way to understanding more and more deeply. I can I know that for some one or uh, I am not sure but uh, I see that it's harder for you know some of them than it is for others so as a mother you have to have a lot of equanimity about that
2: Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. yes.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So the common question, which I'm gonna hand over to Steve. Has to do with discerning uh, our friends, who we hang out with, and what the balance is between, uh, you know, moving away or staying with it with compassion, for example.
3: I think it's uh, a question that we all ask ourselves: is Who? What? What are the people, places, things, behaviors, practices that really help me? And we see a lot of conditions in life that we have to live with that seem to be seem to be, on first glance, impediments to practice, a block to practice, or taking taking our minds in a different direction. The Buddha was uh, pretty forthright in saying the first the first Step in practice, really, or one right effort in practice is to avoid those people, places, things, and behaviors that cause unwholesome states of mind to arise in you. Avoid them. To avoid people, places, behavior, things that cause unwholesomeness to arise in your mind greed, anger, self pity, depression, fear, whatever if you know that this person is going to cause you to feel angry, or if you know that when you hang out with this person, you're, you're just going to be on a, an endless quest for sensual indulgence, you know, um, may, maybe, uh, I, I, I mean, we know what we want, but maybe, you know, the Buddha said, it would be good to avoid them, if at all possible. Okay, so that's one right effort. But, unavoidably, there are many situations in life that we cannot avoid that cause us to have unwholesome states of mind. So then the Buddha said, if this is unavoidable, then minimize the amount of time you spend with such people, that you spend doing such activity, that you spend in such places. Minimize. So avoid and minimize. That's the second. The third is... If it's unavoidable that you must spend some time in such situations uh, and uh, you can minimize it, then when you're there, be mindful. Be really mindful. Be very alert to the arising of um, unwholesome states of mind. Hmm? Make it a special practice, knowing that this person or this place or whatever. And then, fourthly, the other right effort is independent of whether you're with unwholesome or not, cultivate wholesome states of mind. If you cultivate wholesome states of mind in any activity, or every activity, then they become stronger. And even when you are unavoidably facing difficult and challenging situations, your wholesome states of mind can protect you. So, that's the Buddha's words. I think it's, it's it's helpful, really helpful to pick uh, and choose. And sometimes we have to say no. We have to say no to people, to behaviors, to things, to options. We just have to say no, not out of aversion, but out of wisdom. Because we know deep inside us, this is not a, a wholesome place for me. This is not a... a, a I don't have the strength of mind to to go here and to stay balanced or whatever. And so we we avoid. I put it this way. You know, it's easier to learn how to drive a car in an empty parking lot than on the freeway. Right? You want to learn how to drive a car? I don't recommend you start on the freeway. I recommend you start in an empty parking lot, you know, and... mm -hmm. After you know how to drive in an empty parking lot, then you can move on to the freeway. It's like that. Dharma practices are like that. It's best to, I mean, it's, it's, it's necessary. It's useful at times to practice your Dharma and to cultivate wholesome states and minimize wholesome states, go on retreats, practice it. But then, in time, you live life. And when you just live your life, however, wherever, whatever, then you'll have an opportunity to Avoid accidents if possible. And you see, you kind of say, you know, I I don't think I'm going to take that leap of faith. Maybe I'll put the net there first and find my way you know, safely. So you kind of take a more gradual approach. And I don't think it's out of fear. I think it's just out of wisdom. You you know, you learn along the way what works for you. You know that. Big leaps of faith work when you're younger, and maybe they don't work when you're a little older. Maybe, but for someone who's lived a very tame, contained, constrained life, you know, maybe by the time they hit thirty, they say, "I'm out of (coughs) here," and they go for it. I don't know. Everything is allowed. The thing—it's really interesting. The Dharma is available to everyone, no matter what, no matter what side of. The issue you fall on, no matter it's available. It's useful, it's helpful, because the dharma is the way things are. So both sides of an issue, contentious as they may be, can hear and appreciate the dharma. It, it's true. It's always our stuff. Isn't it? It's always our stuff. People are the way they are. And our reaction is always our responsibility. Isn't you can't blame anybody for anything. It's, all, it's always our stuff. So, you know, it's how we react to given whatever situation you're in. Yeah, somebody might be doing something really unwholesome, really unskillful, but your anger at that, or your resentment towards them, or your fear of them, that's your trip. They didn't cause it. You caused it. You allowed it to happen. And so, if you know that that's what's going to happen to you, you can choose, you know, until I get a little more stability, you know, and not so my, my fear trigger or my anger trigger isn't so, maybe I better just kind of keep away. And it's not a judgment of them or of their behavior. They're just doing what they're doing. It's can I withstand it? can I understand it? can I be with it? can I be mindful of it? Can I control my reactivity and instead choose a mindful response rather than a mindless reaction? And that's, that's, this is one really really important thing that you will discover as you engage and stay on the on the path is it's a do-it-yourself project. You've got to do it yourself. You, you, you can't blame anybody for what you're feeling. It's your, that's your kurya, that's your karma. Because there is, there always has been, there still is, and there always will be triggers for your unwholesome states of mind. Okay. It's not like you're going to fix the world and it's suddenly going to be away. It's going to be so, so, so great that you're never going to feel anger. Not because the world is fixed; it's because you've done your practice that you don't feel it.
0: I think this is an important subject. I have a little um, experience in that, <laughs> and a little refinement. I think um, when I'm with someone that brings up the worst in me, for example, that I can't be mindful of, that's when I move away when I'm not strong enough to be mindful because of whatever, you know, past conditioning or whatever. But well, when I'm with someone that brings out states of mind, and I can be mindful of, then it's okay for me. But when I can't be mindful of them, and I end up doing going into wrong speech, or harmful speech, or... Um, uh, mostly that you know when i'm with a person just an example when i was much younger i had a friend i she's still my friend but things have changed along the way and every time i was with her it would bring out the worst in me and i would go towards useless and harmful speech to the he- high heavens you know and i would think what am i doing you know i'd d- come away from that feeling like All we did was gossip, or all we did was... And I couldn't be mindful enough in the moment to just get away from it. It, This was when I was in my 20s. And so I realized, even then, even though the Buddha's teachings were quite new to me, I really have to gain some strength here and move away from this person. And that's what I needed to do, move away from that person, gain some strength of mindfulness so that when we came together again later, which she, she had matured more and I had matured more, then we could both know oh this is this speech is not very nice, you know. We'd start up and no not just not go there. So when I could be more mindful, then it was okay to be with that person. And um, not mindful that led me to break the precepts, no, can't do that. We, we, it's like Steve says, it's unavoidable you know, to be with persons in this world that bring up certain states of mind. I think the question is how mindful can we be of it? And that, that may um, help us to make the decision and be clear about whether we move away or whether we stay. Because sometimes somebody triggering something in us could be very useful. Like a when if somebody outside triggers some insecurity in my own heart, which is a, a vulnerable place for me, I want to be right there with it. That person's my teacher, not my enemy. And I don't want to move away from that. I'm, it's my practice to be very n- noticing what's hap- happening around this insecurity, around this vulnerability, so I can be right with it then. Right
2: yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh yeah. So that's a good example yeah. So uh, if you can be mindful of it and remain there with that wholesome unwholesome state of mind, then that, that would be the practice to do that, but if not, if it's causing more uh, disconnection between yourself and the other person, and a, and actually, you know, when people, when even when we're smiling and a person's in front of us, and uh, or they're smiling and we feel some anger, there's some knowing of it, you know, and that there's some cruelty taking place there. So if we can't really be with it. If we can move away from it kindly, not unkindly, but kindly, and and taking responsibility for it, not saying I gotta leave because you're not compassionate, you know, but saying it's really difficult for me right now because of many conditions, and I really, I just have to remove myself right now. So please understand. Just being really kind about it. So it's it's very tricky, that whole area is so tricky. The key is how mindful and compassionate can we be in that area? If the chances are that you know those there's good chances for that to happen, then maybe we can remain. But if not, then compassionately and kindly remove ourselves. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm,
2: hmm mm hmm mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Oh, karma. So it was a big, long one—more <laughs> than one, uh, more than one Dharma talk or retreat. I'm going to say a little bit, and, and Steve, just on the Buddhist psychology side, um, can probably respond. I don't think I can repeat what you said, but it's—it's um, it's about accepting one's Present moment experience, accepting one's kind of lot in life as a whole, and coming to open to that more and more, being more accepting of that. And also, there's on one side, there's oh, I only have this life. There's that feeling, and um, I don't know what the other side is, but you have that feeling that comes up once in a while. Mm-hmm. So. It's true that just in terms of even if I didn't study the Buddha's teachings and experientially and book knowledge wise, I think I've seen in myself, I have seen in myself and others who are elderly, uh, that you just come to accept things as they are. It's just a natural progression of being human, and we come to see experientially, oh, this happens, and uh, even if we didn't know the word karma, this happens in this moment, and oh yes, I could see how this was a result of what went on in the past. We, we just come to see that quite naturally, and our hearts and our minds become more and more spacious and equanimous have that spacious balance around experience. And so, um, yeah, this, this happens to us, this accepting nature. This one comment you had about the feeling of, oh, I only have this life, well that may or may not be true, you know, uh, depending on um, yeah, if you're going to be an arahant in this life. and <laughs> That may be the end. But also, you know, my understanding, my own experiential understanding is that there are more opportunities than just this lifetime. I, I know that for myself deeply, but I don't put that uh, understanding on anybody else for anybody to accept that without investigating. I find it really helpful to have the belief This may be the only chance I have to practice. To have that belief. Not just this lifetime, but this retreat, for example. This may be the only time I can come and do my practice. To have like a hair on fire. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put all of my balanced energy into this moment, into this practice, into this experience now. And to also hold at the same time that it's a long road. So it, it, it's more than this lifetime if you can hold that. That even at the time of death, there's incredible opportunity to purify the mind because that time is so, it, it can be so explicit, so precious. So to be able to hold only, I have only this time, only this experience, only this moment, only this retreat, and also, it's a long road to have the patience to develop because even you know when the Buddha was Bodhisattva and becoming a Buddha, he developed the Paramis uh, during lifetimes, and those lifetimes took world cycles, not just you know how many lifetimes we would have in this particular earth cycle, but in it is said countless world cycles. So we may or may not believe that, but it just gives us a vision of how big it is, of how long the road can be. So we have to have patience, and at the same time, the determination to have a balanced effort here and now, and to hold both of that in our practice, both of those in our practice. I I, thought you
3: covered it. Pretty good, I think. Keeping that dual perspective of this is the moment, and uh, uh, this is the moment of life. You can't do anything any other moment except this one. And then, if you can open your mind or heart to the understanding that there might be this vast, vast, vast expanse of time in which we progress on the path towards awakening. And holding those two can, can, can be a challenge at times, but I think it's maybe the most balanced way. One thing that came to me that, that I'd never heard myself think before while Kamala was speaking was, I think just your question kind of made me think, when I got to the end of my life, would I rather not have regrets because I didn't do anything regretful? Or would I have regrets because I didn't do everything I wanted to? And I don't think you can do everything you want to do. You know, I, I, it's just not possible. If you do everything you want to do, you're going to have more wants. That, that's endless. And so I think my care would be with not, would be not doing what I would regret. And that can be, I don't want to regret wasting time. so I, I I don't know if that was clear. It seemed clear to me when I thought it, but uh, <laughs> but I, I'm not sure. I'll have, to, I'll have to let that one percolate.
0: Well, I, I kind as you were talking, I kind of thought, how would that work for me? So in this moment's experience, there are opportunities for me to respond with uh, wisdom and compassion or to react in the habitual way. If I just let the habitual tendencies take over, kind of the robotic tendencies take over, then uh, I may do something that I regret. So the way that I can be in a place of having the choice to respond is only by being mindful. And then, from this with this moment, it's very possible that I may not do something that I would regret. So it's such a moment-to-moment thing. Just taking this experience, and um, you know, be mindful. Let wisdom, compassion arise. Respond. You know, make conscious choice. Respond and go that direction. Then, just from the place of mindfulness, every moment, there's a a very good chance that when I die, I'll have the least amount of regrets possible
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. well, there's so much about karma, and I, I, I'll just take the floor here, because I'm just going to come from a simplistic place. A lot of times the word karma is thrown around in relationship to what has happened in the past, right? Uh, this is my karma, what's happening to me now. It's Yeah, that's, you must have heard Steve's talk. He said exactly that. (laughs) Okay, so, yes, so the a, a healthy way to look at karma that's kind of more expansive than just relating it to the past, which I'm not saying that you're only relating it to the past, is to see that in this moment, we have a possibility to change our lives. In this moment. Because... This moment's experience is coming up as it is. Um, we may feel experience anything about this moment, for example. Say a moment arises um, when I experience uh, pain in my heart because of what somebody said to me, for example. And so if that moment is accompanied by aversion, I, I'm experiencing this pain in my heart, m- emotional pain, if that moment is accompanied by aversion, and then I take I say something in reactivity to that moment, to that person, or even not even to that person, just in my mind or to out in the world, and I say, Oh, you know, four letter word or whatever. That's Action, being accompanied by an unwholesome state of mind, gives unwholesome results. That's the you know apple seed apple tree kind of thing. If that moment uh, I feel some someone has hurt me, and it's uh, instead there's it's accompanied by compassion, and then I respond, and I. I may say, oh, I understand. Or you respond, that experience accompanied by wholesome state of mind, then the response goes out into the world, or even your own mind, your own world of the mind. Then there a seed uh, is planted which will bear wholesome results. So the state of mind is really important. And we only know that through mindfulness. We can only make the choice through mindfulness. The state of mind is important to how your future world will be experienced. Does that make sense so far? So it's really, a lot of times we talk about karma in the past, but I want to talk about it in terms of this moment's experience and what we put out in this moment which creates our future. Because then the future, uh, the, the effect of that seed, the, the blossoming of that seed, is then what we live in. So, it, so much of the time when we, when we ponder on karma, or talk about karma, it's, oh, you know, what am I experiencing now, what I did in the past. The past is dead and gone. You can't do anything about that. And the Buddha said, when uh, one of the four imponderables is karma, it can make your head explode. So, even to think about that, there are countless causes and conditions that make one thing happen. That we're one cause, in, in even a great cause of what makes anything happen, is it's not possible. It's so, I mean, There are so many countless causes and conditions. That person's own karma had so much more to do with it than ours. So much, much more to do with what happened than ours. But if we go there, we're going to go crazy. It's, It's better to just... Manindra used to always say, when I would bring it up, one time there was one subject over and over, and he just stopped me when I was driving the car, and he just said, stop. He was sick and tired of hearing it actually. And he said, the past is dead and gone. The future is not yet come. How you're responding in this moment will make your future. Do you want more misery, keep thinking about the past. Drop it, drop it, drop it. So that just like... It was like I was holding this hot charcoal for a long, long time, pondering over something that was... I couldn't even figure out. I was trying to figure something out. And dropping it was a whole new world. Now I have a chance to, to create a world that has uh, conditions that will make my heart blossom in a different way instead of hanging on to the past. So thinking, understanding karma in terms of this moment is much more important than understanding karma in terms of the past.
3: I think we should wrap up the questions and answers. Thank you for listening.